1: Hi, Mark Homer here. I've got my illustrious business partner Rob Moore here <laughs> today, um, and um, I'm going to be talking to him about his new book, Money, uh, which has been um, which has been internationally published uh, in a, a, a number of different languages. It talks about the the history of money, the, um, the the way in which it's come about through time. You know what it means for us today. You know how people use it. Uh, we're just going to sort of dig into that and understand what his sort of, his slant on, on, on how money is used and how it can benefit our society. So Rob, welcome.
0: Hi Mark, thanks for taking the time to do the podcast. I know you're busy. So um, yeah,
1: very honoured. We don't get a chance to catch up as much as we used to, do we? Few and far between, that's no. probably why we've booked our, uh, <laughs> our weekly dinner in these days. Yeah. Uh, we've got so much on. Um, so lots of people say that money doesn't make you happy. Uh, I hear that all the time it, it comes through you know on TV you see it in the newspapers uh, often it's the people that don't have it that are you know more often saying it th- than others but that's not exclusively the case um, so what do you say to that you know does money money make you happy or not I think money is
0: exclusive of happiness but it greases the wheels of happiness. Because I believe that money exaggerates your traits. So Mark, if you were a greedy, evil capitalist and you won the lottery, you're going to use that money for greedy, evil means. If you were a very liberal, socialist, I don't want to make too many um, stereotypes, let's say you want you give all your money away to charities and you won the lottery, you'd probably carry on doing that. So. Money simply makes you more of what you already are. And I think that's the, the bit that most of society don't understand. You know, some people say that money doesn't make you more happy except they can't even afford to um, insure their car or they can't afford to have nice dinners out or they can't afford to go on holiday. And if you ask them, well, if money were no object, what would you like to do? They'd probably like a nicer car. They'd like to spend more time with their friends. They'd like to, to give to charities. They'd like to go on holidays. And what they don't realise is all those things cost money in a capitalist society. So most people's dream, even the most kind of, you know, tree hugging type of person is to spend more time with people doing what they love, setting up charities, helping people. And you have to have assets that produce passive income to free your time or be paid some kind of benefits from a capitalist system to free up the time to do all those things. So I would say that uh, actually money does make you happy or the monetary system can make you more happy because it can at least free the time to do the things that make you more happy. And I've been poor and I've been rich and I'm definitely more happy being having money. And also the biggest cause of divorce is money problems. And whilst you might say money in and of itself doesn't make you happy, try being skin and see how that exaggerates
1: your unhappiness. So for lots of people, especially in the UK, talking about money is not something which they feel is acceptable. It's a taboo subject. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is, specifically in, in the United Kingdom? Well, I think the way we've been
0: raised to work hard, to put your head down, that um, money doesn't grow on trees. And uh, in, in a very sort of, class-divided society where you've got the, you know, the upper class, the working class, the middle class. Um, I think it's those factors that have created a very anti-money culture. And also, you know, if we think about aristocracy, if we think about politeness, if we think about etiquette, all very Englishly created things, you must have the spoon on this side of the fork, on this side of the knife. You must always serve the dinner to this side. You know, It's very much like we, th- we th- this is the way we must do everything. And, and what I, f- I feel like that has created a culture of we're supposed to do this. We must say this. But inside we're craving to go, fuck all this bollocks. I love money. I want to make money. I want to talk about money. I don't want to be a slave to money. So what if you earn this and I earn that? And... and In America, it's very different because they didn't really have so much this deep rooted history in this class system that we have here. So that's my take on why it's become a bit taboo to talk about money. And then also, I think we worry culturally about being judged. Like in America, you, Mark, you as an individual, you would be held up and lauded as a hero. You started from nothing. You were raised in another country. Whilst you weren't an immigrant, you weren't born in this country, you know, and... you 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 came over and you had nothing and you worked hard and you set up a business and you invested in assets and you wrote books and you made yourself successful. And in America, you'd be lauded for that. And in England, if you if if you ever say I'm worth this or I've made this or I've done this, they're like, oh, you can't do that. Oh, we'll pull you down. They have the tall poppy syndrome. But I think that's changing because of the internet and social media and you know how quickly we've we've globalized you know finance is more global now but the world is more global everyone can follow the american influencers and gurus and have the american dream even not americans um and i suppose part of my mission is to get people out of their own way it doesn't matter what class says what society says what do you want do you want to make some more money do you want to use that to buy stuff fine do you want to use that to send your kids to private school fine do you want to use that to set up a foundation fine it's your prerogative to use money, capital, income, however you see fit for whatever causes you choose. And you can do good and make money. You don't have to be Bernie Madoff or Enron. You can do good and make money. And In fact, with you know, social media and, and how news travels
1: a lot quicker, it's probably a smarter play to do good to make more money. So does it make you greedy having this money focus
0: I think that you need a balance. I think if you're purely money focused for all selfish motives, society won't see the benefit to them. You know, if you're all focused on you and not focused on the customer, if it's 100% focused on profit rather than value to the customer, you're, you're out of balance. You're on one, one side of the balanced equation. You know, because ultimately, I think you've got to balance selfishness and selflessness. If you don't offer a value to your customer, your client, your follower, your fan, your subscriber they're not gonna keep paying you money. But if you're overly selfless by saying, oh, well, I'll give it all to charity and don't worry about profit. We don't have to make profit. We're gonna be an NGO, is it? We're gonna be a non-profit organisation. And um, you you know, you have to manage your accounts. You have to manage your finances. I think it's balancing the selfish and the selfless in equal balance. And I think a lot of people, myself included when I was an artist, I think we're probably too selfless oh, I can't charge too much money. I don't want to be perceived to being greedy. I don't want anyone to think of rip them off. So we probably undervalued ourselves. But of course, then there are the people we perceive to be greedy capitalists who maybe overcharge.
1: I think you've got to balance it. So lots of wealthy people um, keep on getting wealthier and money seems to flow towards them. Um, you know, the, the, the poor seem to you know, remain poor uh, to a large extent. The gap seems to get bigger, certainly has done uh, in, in England over the last few years. Um, you know, why, why is that? Why are there, are there some traits which make wealthy people wealthy, which differentiate them from non-wealthy people? Yes, there is. So
0: a body at rest tends to stay at rest and a body in motion tends to stay in motion. So therefore, someone who has already learned how to get rich and spent 10 or 20 or 30 years developing those skills, going in that direction in that prevailing wind, tends to go further in that direction. Someone who's been spending 20 or 30 years being a consumer, not understanding about the laws of money, you know, struggling, spending more than they earn, increasing their credit card debt, tends to go in that direction. So from a I think it was Newton, the the law of, um, one of Newton's laws was a body at rest tends to stay at rest, a body in motion tends to stay at motion. So what you've been doing, Mark, for the last 10, 15, 20 years, building your property portfolio, running your podcasts, doing all the stuff that you do. You've got a lot of momentum, compounding, experience, contacts, goodwill over the last You've been doing this for 20 years, haven't you? So you're gonna just naturally tend to float off in that direction, because that's the way the wind's pushing you. So a lot of people make this massive thing, oh, the rich are getting richer because they're greedy bastards. Oh, the poor are getting poor because they're exploited. But no, they're just going in the, the general direction. That's one thing. The second thing is compounding and momentum, which I know you love as investment principles. Well, if you've been investing, saving, spending, creating value, building products and services and running an enterprise for decades, then you've got compounding, you've got momentum, momentum you've got velocity, you've got direction, um, you've got a network, you've, you know, you've got thousands of customers. So that's where you are. And conversely, if you've got none of that and you've got the opposite of that because you're a consumer. So that's the second reason I think why the rich tend to get richer and the poor tend to get poorer. And ultimately, anything that anyone does is generally because of what they do, Because of what they've learned or not learned. And as much as I used to hate to admit that, well, people who've got rich, just using that sort of term. I used to think that, oh, they must have been lucky or they must have been born rich or, you know, they must screw people over. I used to, because ultimately I wanted to be more wealthy, but I didn't want to admit to the fact that I was a failure. So that was what I'd project out. But they've learned skills, traits. They've got mentors. They, you know, you speak to any millionaire, they read non-fiction, personal development and business books. You, you speak to any zero-air and they read fiction or they don't even read. That's one thing. You know, most millionaires and billionaires have got really good mentors. They read publications about money and business. They're in business. They've got financial backers, JV partners. They go to networking events. So actually when you study them, because my book was an 11, study on the billionaires, the millionaires, um, you realise that they've just built skills and traits. And you can model the traits of the greats. You can um, learn what millionaires and billionaires have done. And of course, some over a period of time have been overly greedy, but then society pulls their money away. Some have consistently added value
1: over decades like Warren Buffett and people
0: like that, and they're just getting richer and richer.
1: So. If these people are creating increased wealth for themselves and the poor are generally staying as they are or maybe even getting poorer, is it true that the root of all evil in the world is money?
0: No, the root of all evil in the world is evil. And money will only exaggerate the traits. Money will not make you anything other than what you already are. So if you give, let's say 20 pounds to someone who's gonna go down to a local school and shoot 20 kids, they may use 20 pounds to buy a magazine of bullets. If you give 20 pounds to someone who's got a foundation, that could feed a family in the third world for 20 days. So, you know, like it's not, every human being has every trait. So every human being can be evil. Every human being can be good because we all have the same traits because we're all human beings. So the root of all evil is evil, not money. And therefore, people who gain sustainable wealth must have balanced selfishness and selflessness and got themselves richer by also getting other people more value in society. So if you look at the Rousing family, um, they're worth billions and billions and billions, even since Hans Rousing passed on years and years and years ago. And they formed the country, or, or Hans Rousing formed Tetra Pak, the company. Now, all they do is make these little tops to bottles and milk cartons and stuff like that. They're plastics and tops. But of course, they've, they've, you know how many milk cartons are sold a day? Billions and billions and billions. So that's a service to humanity which makes their job a bit easier. So anyone as a capitalist, and, and anyone who's in business is a capitalist, anyone who's in a capitalist system is a capitalist because we perform capitalist functions. And there's only five, I think, non-capitalist countries in the world now. Um, Ultimately, if we offer a value to our fellow man, whether it's investing, advice, (laughs) cartons, post-it notes, vacuum cleaners, iPhones, information like you and I do, Mark, with our books and podcasts and property courses, if we give good value, people will continue to pay us money. If we invest that money wisely and innovate, we will continue to get new customers and sell more products. Uh, and if we become greedy and take it all for our own devices, people will stop giving us money. And that, they are the laws of
1: money and the laws of how the, how the world works. So, therefore, does that make the capitalist system the most fair system in the world? I, I think it's difficult
0: to say because it, every system is imperfect. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a champion and a supporter of the capitalist system, but I'm biased because I've done well out of it. But I did badly out of it until I was nearly 26 years old as an artist Um, But I think that it's sustainably been proven over the last few centuries that extreme communism or, you know, socialism the other way towards communism hasn't worked. And now here's the thing. Communism and socialism probably do have some benefits as well. But ultimately, communism just becomes a dictatorship. And if communism had been proven to work, then every nation would be a communist state, not a capitalist state. Now, of course, some people say, oh, well, you know, there's the powers that be that manipulate the system and everything else. Well, maybe there are. But I think a lot of people agree that a good thing for society is to distribute wealth. And people forget that capitalist system does that because of the taxation. And, you know, the rich are taxed a lot. So it is a redistribution system. But taking off the productive to give to the consumer has proven not to work, because otherwise the productive, the producers, are not incentivised to keep producing if you're going to take everything off them. And ultimately, most socialist systems end up
1: being communist. So China's doing pretty well. Yeah, Mm. that's a communist country. Mm. So how does that fit with that?
0: Well, it's one of not very many communist countries. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that uh, what'll be interesting to see is if that stands the test of time.
1: You know, when when you say it's doing well, what do you mean? Six it, it's six economy's good. Six and a half percent GDP growth annually yeah. compared to as at about one and a half and has been for many years. Mm.
0: What do you think then? Because you, you like the capitalist system, don't you? I don't
1: think it's really. I think it's communist only by name. Yeah. This is the thing as well, which is a
0: a really good point, which is what does communism and what does socialism and what does capitalism actually mean? Because there's the neo this and the neo that. And there's all when I was researching capitalism, communism, there's all sorts of hybrid names of them all. And actually, like you said, often
1: it's the either the emperor's new robes or they just call it something. But actually, they never actually implement communism or capitalism. It's a version of. And that's always the yeah. Mm. That's apparently why communism failed. Yeah. Because Karl Marx's ideas were never implemented yeah. properly.
0: But I think that the overriding theme is the taking off the producers to give to the consumers has not proven to work because if you disincentivize producers, they stop producing. And if you give handouts to consumers, they just keep expecting handouts, which is what I think the extreme socialism communism is ultimately being what you've got in a lot of societies is a hybrid of capitalism and socialism because essentially taxation is in a way a socialist thing isn't it take it you know because you're not taking off the rich but you are incrementally taxing them the more they earn the more they get taxed so um ultimately that is given back to infrastructure to ben- you know benefits and all those things i mean look I think no system is perfect. And I think that there are often all these people that are like, capitalism is wrong. The perfect solution is what Marx wrote or, you know, whoever else. Um, but actually, if you study Marxism, he's he's not a complete anti-capitalist. And he doesn't say, I believe in X or Y. He just challenges some of the um, systems, if you like. Um, but we are not in a state of world war we are not in a state where i'll come to your village and i'll murder all your people and rape all your wives and take everything you've got like we were before we had safe regulation government and and capitalist systems and i know mark you sometimes think people think that like um you know all healthcare is wrong and some new age eat some just juice, drink, just drink juice is going to stop all cancer and all cancer research is bollocks. But I think the reality is these systems which aren't perfect actually protect us and keep us safe. And, you know, like as someone who earns decent money and pays a lot of taxes, I know I'm giving back in a socialist way to all these people who get benefit from
1: that. So why do people struggle so much with money and debt? I mean, Clearly, if it's at the heart of society, what we do, um, to some extent, our happiness, why do people not understand the laws of money and why do they struggle with money and debt?
0: Well, why is it that at school we're taught science, we're taught English, but we're not taught money? Now, I know you did economics, but were you taught about money bucketing? Were you taught about having three months of savings? Were you talking about the levels of debt, saving, investing speculating, insuring all the levels of uh, wealth? Were you taught how to manage, man, manage your money well? You know, when you were eight, nine, 10, 11, I don't think that we are. And I think fundamentally, usually the problems of systems and governments, I think is education. Now, from my experience, I wasn't educated about money. When I met you, you taught me about saving, investing. You know, you, you, you compounding, inflation, leverage, gearing. You taught me all of these things. I didn't know them and I wasn't taught them and you'd learned them. So the difference between you and I, you were successfully making money and I wasn't, was, I think, knowledge. Because I could learn what you knew because you taught me and I learned it. So it wasn't where I was born because we were born in different places. It wasn't the school I went to because we went to different schools. It was, I wanted to learn what you knew. And so fundamentally, the problem is in... Education, in what we know and what we don't know. And I don't know why this isn't taught more in schools. And I think that's why you and I have successful businesses in running education and podcasts and writing books and, you know, the, all the we do 550 events across the country a year because people want to know how to invest, how to leverage, how to make money. And
1: um, it's like anything, you, you don't know what you don't know. So... I think what you're saying is that the system isn't really providing that background, education, training, you know, in, in this sphere. So some people have an advantage over others. Um, so, I, you know, th- there are lots of people who are born into wealth um, and even more people who aren't. Is it harder for those people who are not born into yes. a wealthy family?
0: I think it's harder for people if they're born into the third world and they have no access to internet, and no access to knowledge and information, and they have to walk 10 miles a day just to get water. So when I say that everyone has an equal opportunity, I always make the caveat in a developed world where you've got access to the internet and free information or information that travels at the speed of light. So take the third world out of the equation. In the first developed world, it actually doesn't make a difference if you're born into a wealthy family or not. Because sometimes being born into a wealthy family can be a curse because you have to take on your father's legacy. Imagine being the son of Tiger Woods. Talk about pressure. And actually, second generation wealth often is eroded by the third generation because they squander the first generation. Because if I gave you 100 million quid, but you had no knowledge of investing and what to do with that, that's just to exaggerate everything that you've, you, you don't know. So born, being born into a wealthy family can give you privileges. But if you don't learn how to invest and leverage that money wisely and set up a, a business and manage it and grow it. So it's not always a benefit to be born into wealth. I wasn't born into wealth. You weren't born into wealth. Um, but there's got to be the desire there to want to learn. Now, now don't get me wrong, if someone came and gave you and I 100 million quid each, we wouldn't turn it down. But if you'd have given me 100 million quid 11 years ago, I'd have wasted that. But now I feel like I have some knowledge of how to leverage it. So,
1: therefore, can you be rich and happy at the same time? You can be rich and happy, rich and
0: unhappy, poor and happy, poor and unhappy. So people are always looking for generalisations, but you can have rich people who've got billions and their son dies, they get divorced, they have some real difficulties with their health. And that money is going to make their life more comfortable, it will, but it's not necessarily going to take away all the unhappiness. So this is why I think money and happiness are mutually exclusive, because happiness is a feeling and it's an emotion. I just think if you learn and leverage money wisely, you can use it to exaggerate the traits. But one thing I do know for sure is things are harder and worse when you are poor. But human beings aren't exclusively happy or unhappy. You have good days and bad days. You have days when you sleep well and don't sleep. You can have a a year or a quarter at Progressive where the accounts don't look great, but... You know, maybe your health is good, you're running a lot, your relationship with Gemma is great, you're you're developing your house and all the other things in life are going well. You can have times where things aren't going so well, but you're making a ton of money and it makes it all better. So you can have anything or nothing. But I just think I want to get into people's heads that you're probably going to be overall more happy if you master wealth, but don't let it master you.
1: But surely, you know, if you're really, really wealthy and you're making loads of money and there are loads of underprivileged people out there who aren't, by making all this money, are you not taking money from them? I think that's what I used to think. And I think that's one of the reasons
0: why I didn't charge a lot for my art and I could never put my prices up. But the reality is, You only get money in exchange for products and services and value you create. No one gives Dyson 350 quid unless they reckon they get a good vacuum cleaner. No one gives Apple a grand or 1150 quid now for an iPhone X unless they reckon they get 1150 quids worth of value for it. So money moves in exchange of what people perceive the value they're getting is. People never pay any more for what they think something's worth they'd happily pay less, but someone wouldn't sell anything for less than it's worth. So actually, an exchange, a transaction is operating under fair exchange where you think you're getting equal value, and I think I'm making a fair profit and giving you value. So therefore, anyone who's made a load of money has to have given value to society to that equal amount. And if they didn't, because it was a scam, like something like Madoff or Enron, in the end, it gets outed, and then all the money comes back and more, and then you go to prison. So it's not like the rich are taking what the poor would have because money moves to those who value it and those who create products and services that serve humanity.
1: You've written this book. It's called Money. It's pretty good, actually. I've, I've read it and oh, it took me a lot to say that. You, know, so <laughs> you've you said know, that through your teeth. I don't say that lightly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, you've written this book and um, there are already lots of other money based books out there. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've seen loads over the years. They give differing ideas of you know, how to generate it, how to keep it um, you know, and, and what it means to be wealthy. Why did you write this one and what makes it different? Okay, so I
0: agree with you. There's a load of books out there on money, but I found that they were very different and niche. There's the spiritual ones, there's the mindset ones, there's the textbooky, economicsy based ones. There's the history ones. There's the psychology ones. But there wasn't one book. There's all sorts of how to get rich books. There's biographies and autobiographies, stories, analogies. But what there wasn't was one book that had it all. There wasn't like the Britannic, Britannica Encyclopedia of Money. The story, the psychology, the history the nuts and bolts, the tactics, the how-to, the future, you know, the future of all the currencies like Bitcoin. And so I took on a very big challenge of trying to solve my own problem, which was how do I write a book where someone can get a one-stop shop on all things money? And that was uh, what money is. And
1: I think that's why it's doing really well. So it... It's clearly been put out there to solve some problems. You've, you've, you've written this to, you know, to provide an answer to, to people's questions and, and, and you know, people's desire to generate more wealth. What problems does it actually solve? Okay, so first off, it gets rid of polarised and extreme views
0: such as capitalism is bad, making money is bad, making money is greedy, you have to screw people over to get rich, you have to be born into wealth, all of that stuff. So any extreme view, it proves through research, through experience that actually that's not the case, that's just someone's view, number one. It it, it details how money has evolved over time because when you understand how money has evolved over time, you understand how you can use it for the future. Let's say, for example, you were put into power and you were responsible for our armies. If you researched every world war and every war going back for 300 years, you're going to have some strategies and tactics around how to control an army, and you know, war strategy and, and that kind of stuff. You might go back and read Sun Tzu, the Art of War, and all this kind of stuff. So the history of money and and, and where it's come from and how it's evolved helps you understand things like Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, you know, all the decentralisation of um, money and wealth, you know, everyone's setting up their own little cryptocurrency and the power moving a bit from the banks and how money is liquid and how it moves and the, the, the meaning of currency and flow and then what people over time have done to become millionaires and billionaires and you model all of those going back and then that's all pasted forward into the book so that you can model that. I modeled all many billionaires, some that, you know, I know of, some that I've, I've, I've modeled some of my mentors and then the billionaire philanthropists. You know, for example, um, nearly every billionaire that you can study has become a philanthropist. So people say that some people say that all people who make a lot of money are greedy, but they're not. They've They've used their wealth. And when it comes time to die or near that time, they pass the wealth back on through charities and foundations. And they set up universities and libraries. Many of our institutions, which almost seem are outside of capitalism, like universities and libraries, were set up by people like Vanderbilt you know, who were billionaire capitalists in, you know, all the, or, or Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, you know, the steel magnate, you know, loads of uh, libraries in his honour and name. So actually you find out that they're not all take, 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 they're equal take and give, take and give. Um, so what it does is it puts all the information about money in one place. It demystifies technical stuff like history and economics and all that stuff, you know, the writings of Smith and all those people going back, which is, to a lot of people dry and difficult to understand things like fair exchange, um, concepts of economics, supply and demand, etc., make it easier to understand. And then how to implement it in your everyday life and then evolve through the future so that you can leverage the new. Because really the new rail and the new steel is the Internet and social media. So, you know, you had steel, rail, telecommunications air travel, all these things that network the globe more instantaneously. And the modern things like blockchain, um, so a decentralisation of control and a network and social media and, of course, the internet, which is ultimately a decentralisation of control uh, are from the big corporate machines and a, um, an instant network across the globe. All that, that accelerates the speed of money because money can only move as fast as we can communicate with each other. So if you think about it, 200 years ago, money could move at the speed of a horse. And if you wanted to set up a business 200 years ago, you had to go and get a loan from a bank, from only one bank in the town, which you might've had to walk six miles to. Um, And then you've got to buy premises and have a lease and have stock, And only people in your local town or village can buy from you. That's a very limited way of growing business. And everything was blah, blah, and sons, Homer and sons. So two, three, 400 years ago, Your legacy for setting up your business was you took over your dad's business because we were very localised and tribal like in, you know, little villages, which were only a few hundred people strong and then tens of miles apart. But as population has grown and we've connected quicker, so the ability to make money has grown and become quicker. And there are Chinese billionaires now um, on e-commerce sites in their early 20s. And of course, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, became a billionaire in his 20s. Now... Uh, just just one generation ago, the youngest billionaires were in their
1: 50s and 60s. One generation on, and the billionaires are now in their 20s and 30s. It's incredible, isn't it, mm. to think all this history around sort of money and its generation and how long we've used it for, uh, you know, as a, as a means of exchange. It's um, it, it, it's just fascinating to understand the, the origins of all mm. this and, and how we've got to where we are. So, Rob, how do people get a copy of your book, how do they find out more about it? Where do they go? Job
0: so paperback version is out now. It was on pre-order for many months, but it's out now. So you can go on Amazon and you can find just search money and my name, Rob Moore. You can also get it on Audible. It's pretty much on every platform that you can buy your physical or audio books. Also, what we've got at the moment is a special offer. So for people who get money right now, you can get uh, two free tickets to our Make, Manage and Master event. Now, all of those tickets sold out on the audiobook launch, but we've launched a new date, so a brand new one-off event called Make, Manage and Master Money. I believe you're doing keynote speeches at it. I'm definitely doing a few keynote speeches at it. We've got someone who was turning over 1.5 billion in the 80s. That's one of the keynote speakers. We've got a Bitcoin cryptocurrency expert coming in and doing some speaking there, and so we've put a new date on for January, and we have one other special bonus, which I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but if you go on Amazon or Audible, buy it, and then just email me at rob.more at
1: progressiveproperty.co.uk, I'll make sure I get you your bonuses. Rob, thank you. It's been uh, it's been interesting. Uh, Learned lots of things myself today, even, even though we do spend rather a lot of time together, or have done over the years. Um, that's been Mark Homer for Mark My Words.